to uh, let you know that I'm still okay and to explain a few things, I hope. Um, first, about the good faith gesture. There was some misunderstanding about that. And um, you should just do what you can. I mean, they understand that that you want to meet their demands and that, uh, and they real. I mean, they had every intention that you should be able to their demands they weren't trying to present an unreasonable request Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Colts Coffee and Conversation. My name is Carl. And I'm Holly. I'd like to welcome you to another exciting edition of Colts Coffee and Conversation. Before we get into the meat of the subject, first and foremost, this is our disclaimer. We're strictly for entertainment purposes only. We're a standard regular people. It's based on our opinions. If we, if we do have opinions on the subject, it is our own personal point of view. Once again, entertainment purposes only. It must be important that you understand that. Anyway, moving on. Let us know how you think about the podcast. We hope you enjoyed our nice little live video of everything, well, of what we're actually covering, the SLA. Please, let us, once again, let us know. We want feedback, feedback, feedback. And five stars, five stars, five stars. Give us five stars. We're begging, pleading. We need five stars. And we also need comments. We need to know what you think, people. You gotta know. Hit us up on Facebook at Colts Coffee and Conversation, Instagram, Colts Coffee Convo, Twitter at Colts Coffee Con 1, that's Colts Coffee Con 1, and, Col- and of course we have our Gmail account, our email account at Colts Coffee Convo at gmail.com, and we also do have our audio message as well. Yes, you record a voice memo and you send it off to our Gmail account, Colts Coffee Convo at gmail.com. Alrighty, so let's go ahead and get back into it. Uh, whoa, wait forgot one other thing we forgot about our coffee that's right because this is colts coffee and conversation all right before we get into our colts let's talk about our coffee and then begin our conversation holly what are you drinking i am having a french roast with italian sweet cream very nice i am having a spanish latte once again back-to-back spanish lattes can't get enough of them they're delicious all righty so SLA Symbionese Liberation Army. So we left off talking about the assassination of Marcus Foster. Yes, we did. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into it a little bit furthermore in the aftermath of the Marcus Foster assassination. Now, with the assassination of Marcus Foster, to freeze thought an action by a small vanguard group would actually trigger a large rebellion by the mass population. Now, it did not work out the way he wanted it to. Uh, everyone, including the Black Panthers, denounced the SLA and mourned Marcus Foster. Now, the Black Panthers also called for the capture of his killers. Okay. So, while in the Concord House, DeFries decided to tone down the violence mm. and started planning kidnappings instead. Mm. They modeled themselves after the Tupamaros in Uruguay. In a nutshell, they would hold their kidnapped victims for propaganda and financial gain. Yeah. Who would be their victim? They had lists of 24 names, mostly banker and corporate executives, but included the California Department of Corrections director, Raymond Prokiner. They wrote up communiques with language like kidnap and ransom and or failure to meet, quote unquote, and pretended the group was bigger than it really was. Mm. 
Joe Romero met Bill Harris in Oakland, where Bill was registering voters in support of Bobby Seale for the Oakland mayor campaign. Mm. Romero was handing out leaflets supporting farm workers. Mm. Both of them were loosely affiliated with the Venciermos, one of the most radical groups in the Bay Area, and Joe talked to Bill about joining the SLA. Mm. In early December 1973, Bill and Emily Harris were blindfolded and taken to the Concord House to meet with DeFries for an interview. Mm. After DeFries approved them, they quit their jobs and joined the SLA in Concord. Mm. On December 19, 1973, Bill Harris read the San Francisco Examiner announcement, the engagement of Patricia Campbell Hurst to Stephen Andrew Weed. They also found out she was attending UC Berkeley at the time. Knowing there was a student register in the university administration building, Bill went and looked up Patricia Hurst and found her address, 2603 Benvenue, Apartment 4 in Berkeley. Okay, so let's let's talk about a little bit about the Hursts. Okay, I know pretty much everybody's kind of familiar with it, but let's go ahead and uh, kind of give them a little quick refresher, okay? So, of course, we're talking about the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst. Now, let's go a little back furthermore of William Randolph Hearst's father. Now, William Randolph Hearst's father won, well, you could say won, but there was a bunch of gambling debts that was owed to him. He ended up getting the San Francisco Examiner. Okay, so he, of course, he originated with the San Francisco Examiner. William Randolph Hearst took over the San Francisco Examiner. And then he started his expansion to all points of the country. When it's all over, said and done, here's a few of them that he had. It's 28 total, but here's some that are pretty notable. The New York Journal, the LA Examiner, Boston American, the Atlanta Georgian, Chicago Examiner, Detroit Times, Washington Herald, the Washington Times, and, of course, the Seattle Post-Examiner, to say the least. The father of Patty, whose name was Randolph Apperson Hearst. Now, he was a twin brother of David Whitmore Hearst, but pretty much nothing really, they really didn't do much. They pretty, what, what it looks like when I was trying to find anything on these guys is they pretty much sat down and collected a check. I think, yeah, we call them trust babies. Yeah, definitely <laughs> a spitting image of a trust baby. But Patty's mother, Catherine Campbell Hearst, now she's a whole different animal. Now, she's a little bit more active. She also comes from a wealthy family as well. Her job was basically a socialite and a philanthropist, okay? But she was also more than that. She was a member of the Junior League. She was the director of the San Mateo Society for Crippled Children and Adults. She served a two-year term at the University of California Board of Regents. Now, this one really surprised me was that she was an advocate for the removal of the radical activist Angela Davis from, te- from a teaching position at the university. So she's a little more active as far as... Uh, in her political life? Yeah, she's more, more, more active in that, in that thing. And now, of course, we're going to talk about Stephen Weed. Now, this interesting little caveat here. Now, Stephen, uh, we assumed he was actually a professor at Berkeley, but he wasn't. He was not. He was Patty's math teacher at Crystal Springs School for Girls. Absor- was that a high school? This was a high school, so you can kind of absorb that how you will. Now, he also uh, was an author of a book called My Search for Patty Hearst, okay, which you can buy in bookstores still to this day. Now, the mother, of course, 
Catherine did not approve of Stephen Weed at all. Didn't like him, wanted nothing to do with him. Because, well, you know what? We'll save that quote for what she said about him at a later time. Okay. But yeah, she did say something that really, really hit the nerve. So that's a little recap, guys, of kind of pretty much what the Hearst family, the, the history of the Hearst family with Patty and with Stephen Weed. So I'm sorry. Sorry to cut you off. Just wanted to bring that in. But go ahead and... So we're talking about Bill Harris looking at Patty Hearst's address. Yeah, that's correct. For the, for and the... he reported his findings back to the group and DeFreeze. They started a plan to do surveillance on the apartment to identify Patty's regular schedule and to figure out what would be the best time to grab her. Mm. Now, shortly before the SLA could carry out their plan, now there's a huge debacle that happened, which was the arrest of the apprehension of or I'm sorry, apprehension, can never, can't talk right today, uh, of Little, of Russell Little and Joseph Romero. Now, and, and the abandonment of the Concord House, which we talked about in the previous episode where they tried to torch it, but they had the windows down, not up, so the air could fuel the fire. So, yeah. Yes, that was in our last episode. We, and we also went over the arrest. So now Russell Little and Joseph Romero have been arrested and they were booked into Concord City Jail and they had to call in extra shifts of guards to surround the building. Hmm. No one got in or out without being thoroughly checked. The two were transferred almost immediately to Contra Costa County Jail, hmm. where armed guards on the roof were joined by extra street patrols. A little extreme, but makes sense, I guess. Well, the reason, you know why. Yes, go ahead. They were worried. Yeah, of course. New and more serious charges were filed against the pair, bringing their bail to almost $750,000 each. That's a lot. Not wanting to allow any chance for escape or for an assisted breakout, it was decided that Romero and Little would be transferred to California's most secure penitentiary, San Quentin Prison. Mm. This move was unprecedented as suspects are presumed innocent until proven guilty, and only the guilty are housed in penitentiaries. Right. On February 17, 1974, Little and Romero attempted to release a statement to the public with some of their grievances. This was seized by prison authorities, but found its way to the media in March. Mm. Some grievances included that they were being held in isolation, the whole on death row of being starved and other claims of harassment, intimidation, and violence. Mm. They claimed that this was under direction of the FBI. Of course. Wait a minute. So let me get this straight so I can paint a picture here. You're telling me that these two guys, Little and Romero, both are being held into the hole in San Quentin, which is, of course, unheard of, and each bail is $750,000 because they're basically being set up as the actual assassinations, the assassinators. That's the right word. I'm assassins. Looking. Assassins, thank you. Assassins for the Marcus Foster situation, correct? Yes. Oh, but what really happened, though? In reality, the assassination was carried out by three people. Mm. Donald DeFries, Nancy Ling Perry, and Ms. Moon Sultasik. Mm. Nancy hit Foster in the leg with her second shot, and then Ms. Moon walked calmly towards Foster with a revolver. Mm. She fired as she walked closer, hitting Foster repeatedly. 
DeFries stepped forward and fired two blasts from a 12-gauge shotgun, which hit Blackburn's back. He survived. Now, Blackburn was the assistant to Marcus Foster. And also, Ms. Moon made sure that Marcus Foster was dead by shooting him in the neck for the last time. Wow. Ms. Moon is ruthless. Yes, cold-blooded murderer. Mm, okay, so let's get, and get back to the, the, the heart of the matter here. So they decided to go with doing kidnapping. Yes. Okay, so this is what they're focusing on. So, of course, they have already picked up their victim, which is obviously who? Patty Hearst. So let's talk about that, the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. Now, after they failed attempt to like burn the Concord house down, they met up at the Castro District in San Francisco. Uh, Ms. Moon and Emily Harris were tasked to rent a safe house in Daly City. Now, they proposed this TWA uh, flight attendants. TWA, Trans World Airlines. Airlines. Mm. TWA flight, flight attendants. And they rented a three-bedroom uh, three apartment. Now, they installed a heavy-duty bolt-like type lock for the front door and prepared the walk-in closet in the master bedroom. Now, this, the master bedroom closet was set up for captivity. Yes. Okay. So, because of the, the heat that created by the arrest of Little Romero, now, DeFreeze decided that they must commit to the next SLA action. They would kidnap Patricia Hearst, and they, they used her as a, a bargaining tool to free Little and Romero. Wow. Yeah. Everybody was on board, but there was some people who were kind of hesitant about it. Bill Harris was the was the one that is known to be hesitant because he had his concerns. Well, I'm sorry, would the authorities acquiesce their demands? What were their demands going to be? Uh, what would they do with Harris if they weren't? So there's a lot of questions there, but DeFree said that the goal was to obtain freedom for Little Romero, and if not, a uh, safe passage to Cuba would be set up for the rest of them. So Bill Harris thought it wasn't viable, but he, of course he went along with the plan anyway. The surveillance information gathered... They selected February 4th, 1974 to kidnap Patty Hearst. They would arrive at the apartment in Berkeley shortly after sunset. Now, Camilla Hall would back up into the driveway with DeFreeze, uh, Bill Harris, and Angela Atwood. They would enter the apartment, grab Patty, and put her in the trunk of the car. Emily Harris would wait in the station wagon in the front of the apartment with Nancy Ling Perry riding shotgun, literally. Uh, William Wolfe and Ms. Moon would be in the VW Bug, to lead the caravan away from the kidnapping scene. Now, there's one problem with all this. They needed three cars, but they only had two. So, of course, let's find another car. So, from Daly City, they drove two cars towards the Berkeley apartment. Now, they were going to carjack the third. Uh, they had a lot of trouble finding a car to steal until finally they took a junker from a local resident. Now, unfortunately, the owner of the car froze uh, at their commands to leave the car to them. And so, what they did was they just tied him up, shoved him in the back seat, and put a blanket over him. That fixes everything. Now, the kidnapping took four minutes total. They took Patty's credit cards and the other forms of identification. They left a cyanide-filled bullets, because that's their calling card, in the apartment. No one was hit by the gunfire, but Steve Weed, her fiancé, was badly beaten in the neighborhood, badly beaten, and also the neighbor, Steve... Suniga. Suniga, as well. Half a mile away from the apartment, they transferred Patty from a stolen vehicle... To the back of the station wagon and told the owner to tie it up in the back seat not to uh, call the police or he'd be killed and he didn't go to the police until the next day so he still went anyway good for him now the station wagon was pulled into the garage in the daily city house where patty was led to the closet 
which was repaired for her with the mattress cut to fit the door for the floor. All right. So DeFreeze formed, uh, I'm sorry, DeFreeze informed Patty she was in the custody of the Symbionese Liberation Army and was arrested, not kidnapped, because her father was a corporate enemy of the people. Before we go any further, here's the thing when the, the story was breaking. Patty Hearst's mom, obviously we've already covered, does not like Mr. Weed, right? Correct. So she came out with this, with this nice little statement, which is a nice little shot at Steve Weed or Stephen Weed. Whatever happened to the, and this is it, and I quote, whatever happened to the real men in this world, like Clark Gable, no one would have carried off my daughter if there was a real man had been there. So, shot at you, Stephen Weed. Take that. Well, also, I heard he mentioned, take whatever you want when they burst in. When the three of them burst in to grab Patty, he Mm. said, take whatever you want. Yeah, they did. Hmm. Keep my comments to myself. Continuing on, he went to explain to her that she was being held so they could trade her for Little and Romero. Now, she was being held by the, the rules of prisoners of war the G, through the Geneva Convention, but she would be treated like, I'm sorry, she'd be treated as, as Little Romero were treated in jail. Well, according to the previous story that you were mentioning, they were not treated very well. So, Correct. Yeah. He told her that she would probably be released soon as long as they could work out something with their family. Now, the police were notified of Patty's kidnapping from the students studying the next uh, door apartment. They reported gunfire. Uh, Stephen Weed ran from the apartment after he had been beaten, yelling in the darkness of the house to call the police. Now, he went back into the apartment and asked where Patty was. He was informed that she had been taken. Oh, I don't know if he really realized they were going to take Patty. I, maybe he thought they were just going to steal stuff, but... I mean, you're so surprised and shocked that this happened. But why would three people with guns want to take your little uh, cheap apartment stuff? Good point. But you know what, though? You don't know what the apartment was set up because she was Patty Hearst. Yeah, uh, maybe she had some nice things in there. some nice things in there. Well, I was also looking on uh, CNN had a small little minor interview on, it's on YouTube where he was saying that they had a, a $1 bottle of uh, romance wine or something like that <laughs> i don't even know what yeah, that is yeah i don't know what the heck that is they said they uh, uh they beat him down with that bottle oh okay and then uh, blood was blinding him uh, well i did eyes. see a picture of him his beat up face uh-huh. on one of the you know archived uh photographs right and he is very he doesn't even look recognizable okay so, yeah, so they beat him pretty good and they're saying that uh, he was trying to run out the door but what happened was he was basically running to the walls of the apartment and stuff. Oh, he was just, well, he, well, yeah, he, he was, was in a panic and I mean, he you got beat down up. with a bunch of bottles. Mm-hmm. So yes. there you go. Uh, the reporters picked up the story and they were asked by the police not to report it yet. That was common practice in those days. Huh, not now. Police notified Patty's sister, Virginia, who lived a few blocks away. And she, in turn, called her sister, Anne, in Hillsborough. Now, Anne called her parents' hotel where they were staying in Washington, Randy Hurst, Patty's father, called his newspaper, The Examiner, San Francisco Examiner, who were already on the case. He warned them, do not do anything that may get Patty hurt. So when the Hurst returned to their home, to their to Hillsbury home, Hillsborough home, they found out that the SLA had done it. The police identified the cyanide-laced bullets as the people who assassinated Marcus Foster. So there comes the connection. Now, DeFreeze was upset that there was no press coverage of the kidnapping, so he had Nancy Ling Perry draft a communique 
to send to the local radio station KPFA, and it was about three days before the Hearst heard anything from the SLA. Basically, the communique did not have any ransom demands of no money, no exchange for Little or Romero. The threat was harm to Patty if there was a rescue attempt. Uh, the most important demand was the communique was to be published in all full media forms. Okay, so now later on down the road, they did have one of the demands. It was called, it was a food giveaway, right? Yes. So let's go ahead and get into that food giveaway. Holly, you have some information regarding that. The idea of the food giveaway came from Bill Harris. He felt they would get more public support with that idea than the assassination of a black school superintendent. And as a matter of fact, they were really in shock. DeFreeze was really in shock that that backfired on him. So Really? Yes, and later on I found out that he had told William Wolfe to go into these school board meetings and find out information of what was going on. And William Wolf was not accurate, mm. okay, with his reporting and wasn't really into it. So he just said some things that gave DeFreeze some false ideas of what Marcus Foster was really doing. Right. Well, yeah, no, because we discussed in the yes, previous episode that, you know, was trying to put police in the school and, you know, creating ID cards and stuff. Which yes, Hindsight sounds like a good idea. But, guess what? It was a good idea because guess what? That's what kids do now. But what I'm saying right. is all of that information wasn't properly communicated, and that's why DeFreeze ended up killing Marcus Foster. Mm. Anyway, DeFreeze finally warmed up to the idea mm-hmm. and issued the demand himself in a second communique. It starts with what our opening says to mm-hmm. this podcast. To those who would bear the hopes and future of our people, Let the voice of their guns express the words of freedom. Greetings to the people, fellow comrades, brothers, and sisters. My name is Sin Q, and to my comrades I am known as Sin. I am a black man and representative of black people. I hold the rank of General Field Marshal in the United Federation Forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Mm. So in this communique, he set forth his demand for a food giveaway. He wanted Randolph Hearst, Patty's father, to set it up with his money as a sign of good faith. And here are the demands. Go for it. $70 worth of top quality food to everyone with welfare cards, social security, pension cards, food stamp cards, disabled veteran cards, medical cards, parole or probation cards, and jail or bail release slips. Oh, that's all? Hmm. That's a lot of people. Tons. It would be... A distribution in the largest seven cities in grocery stores. Mm. The giveaway would be over a four-week period of time. Mm -hmm. The SLA, Seven-Headed Cobra, their Their logo, logo. would be on all the boxes and communications. Full text of the statements of DeFreeze and Patty Hearst must be printed. All attempts to mislead the public concerning the intentions of the SLA or to confuse the public by withholding or admitting sections of the tape or SLA documents jeopardizes the prisoner. The problem with this plan is it was insane yeah. and not able to be done. The cost would be $400 million in those days, which would be about $2 billion in today's money. Yeesh. Interestingly enough, this communique started with Patty Hearst saying, Mom, Dad, I'm okay. Mm. So there's some peace of mind there. So she went on, meaning Patty, went 
on to let them know that she was blindfolded, but out of restraints most of the time. She made references to Little and Ramiro as being prisoner of war as she was. Her crime was that she was part of a ruling class family as Little and Ramiro were part of the SLA but did nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. She encouraged her parents to do what DeFries wanted as soon as possible so she could be released. Mm, okay. So now the food giveaway had to be organized. Yeah. Okay. It's a lot of people. So Peggy Mays ran a food bank network in the state of Washington named Neighbors in Need to address the Boeing plant closure in 1971. Mm. Randolph Hearst asked her and the Washington Secretary of State to organize the food giveaway demand by the SLA. Yeah. So this is called People in Need, or PIN, P-I-N. Very nice. The SLA had a list of community groups he wanted to participate in the distribution. One was the Black Panthers, the United Farm Workers, Glide Memorial Church in San Francisco. The Black Panthers and the United Farm Workers refused to participate because they did not want to be associated with the SLA. Fair enough. Groups like the American Indian Movement and the United Prisoners Union agreed to take part, sending members to assist in the food distribution. The participating groups gave credence to the SLA and laundered their reputation. Mm. Randolph Hearst had limited assets because his father, William Randolph Hearst, created trusts for his sons so they wouldn't squander his wealth after his death. He raised about $2 million. All right. That's still a lot of money. Mays needed a major distribution center in order to collect and distribute the food. Mayor of San Francisco, Joseph Alioto, directed them to a World War II huge empty warehouse in China Basin. Now, that area is where the baseball field, Petco Park, is located today. Yeah, that's, that's, that place is huge. May set up there and started contacting her food distributors in Seattle. Now, this project had a lot of publicity, so people from all kinds of backgrounds came to help. It was known there was $2 million to spend so all kinds of organizations came forward to get their hands on that money. Thanks, Skippy, they did. Now, here's some of those people and organizations. One day, a trio of men in suits and dark glasses came into Mays' office unannounced. He introduced himself as Reverend Jim Jones of the People's Temple. Ah. He told her she was an outsider and this operation should be run by local people. He said he should be the one to run the program and manage the $2 million. Mays told Jones she was from San Francisco and was fully capable of running the program as she showed them the door. Good girl. Good girl. Now, the other people that came was Joseph X. Polite, or Polite and Leonard X. Vaughn, who were members of the Nation of Islam. They showed up early one day and... They demanded that people in need buy food through the Nation of Islam. Oh, not so polite. She said she was using her network in Seattle. They then visited Randolph Hearst at his home in Hillsboro and convinced him to make Mays buy food through them. 
It would be a statement to the SLA they were working through their allies. She bought some eggs but had problems later on with them. Hmm. Not with the eggs, but with the nation of Israel. I'm sorry, Islam. (laughs) Sorry. A woman came to Mays and claimed... This is a separate person now. Right. A woman came to Mays and claimed she was sent from God to help. She was an accountant and would volunteer to see the project through. She seemed conventional in her background and profession. Her name was Sarah Jane Moore, who attempted in 1975 to assassinate President Gerald Ford. Wow. On February 21st, DeFries released another communique criticizing what was going on. He felt the $2 million was not enough. It was just crumbs to the people. He also included now anyone who wanted food could come and get it. So now he's upping the ante. Of course. He wanted the total upped to $6 million and said Patty would be held until such time that demand was fulfilled. They went ahead with the food distribution in four minority neighborhoods. Anyone who wanted the food could receive it. They set up to hand out the food on sites owned by the Nation of Islam. Mm. Instead of leaving China Basin in the morning, unfortunately, they arrived in the late afternoon. Mm. People had been standing, waiting most of the day, so they were extremely restless. The boxes were supposed to have 27 pounds of food with a variety of meat, dairy, and produce. Not all did. In Oakland, after waiting for hours, the trucks finally arrived. There were 5,000 people standing in the way. The first truck started honking his horn to get people to move out of the way. Makes sense. A riot ensued. The trucks were emptied by the crowd, rushing and throwing the food into the streets. Most people got nothing, and those that did were attacked by gangs of kids who stole their food. One woman lost an eye when a rock was thrown through her car window. Unbelievable. Now, the next group is just a little interesting side note of the San Francisco Bay Area scene at the time in this 1974. Uh-huh. It was called the Delancey Street Foundation, which was part of Synanon. Uh-huh. Okay, now, Synanon was a drug rehabilitation group at the time, which was very controversial. Right. But they offered to help the food distribution by offering 300 men and 30 trucks. Their conditions, they will not accept payment or publicity. That's nice. Mm -hmm. Now, the outcome of these volunteers was they mostly stopped the wreckage and pilfering of the food drop-off place. Unfortunately, a truck with food for 4,000 people was hijacked the following week. Jeez. Okay. So it sounds like a mess. Big old huge mess. That's unfortunate. But hey, it happened, so there you go. So so the demands are being made not to their satisfaction, but they're doing it anyway. The yes. best of what they have. So now let's kinda go back towards back home to the to the uh, the hideout here. Now we're gonna talk about the brainwashing of Patty. Yes. Now there's a lot of controversy in regarding this, uh, where, you know, if she was really brainwashed or not, but we'll get into that another time. But we'll go ahead and discuss it. Now, Patty was kept in the closet in the early days of her capture. Now, Angela Atwood was assigned to befriend her. Now, initially, the group would play music loudly while they were discussing their plans so Patty could not hear them. 
Patty was given revolutionary books to read and many discussions with Angela. Now, she enjoyed her time with Angela, but dreaded her interactions with DeFreeze because he was so confrontational. Now, DeFreeze kept telling her that she had more to fear from the FBI raiding and killing her than the SLA killing her. Now, Patty believed him. DeFreeze gave her a sawed-off shotgun to practice breaking it down, holding it and shooting it. Now, he gave her a gas mask as well. When this time came, he told her that he would give her ammunition laced with cyanide. Now, time went on, and through the food giveaway demands, Patty was slowly being turned from her parents and was told her father was lying about his wealth. Patty knew nothing of the family's money matters. It was never discussed in their home. After the first month of captivity, Patty was included in the practice drills of the SLA in case the FBI raided their home. Now, on March 9, 1974, another communique was released where Patty uh, berated her parents and told the world that she was afraid of the FBI and they wanted her dead. She warned everyone that if the FBI raided them, she would have shot, gun, to protect herself. She said the FBI was her enemy, not the SLA. Now, in the Daily City House, Padley has established relationships with everyone except for Camilla Hall and Bill and Emily Harris. Patty declared she did not want to go home. She saw the entire media circus and how her parents were handling it. This is when she was having sympathetic feelings towards her captors. Angela Atwood took notice of this change in Patty and brought it up to DeFreeze, that maybe Patty was one of them. Now, DeFreeze was hesitant about adding her to the group. He wanted to use her to bargain for Little and Romero out of San Quentin. Real quick, I don't ever remember talking with any of their communications so far that they wanted them released. Just throwing that out. Just throwing it out. Oh, I think there was, like, hints of it. Oh, but not at flat out. Yes. Ah, okay. Anyway, also at this time, DeFreeze felt that the FBI was on their way to raid the Daily City House and wanted to move immediately. So they moved into San Francisco, hopefully to blend in with the people there. Patty insisted she wanted to join the SLA. She said she wanted to renounce her former life and join their cause. She wanted to fight for the people. Now, one night, she was on the bed, and DeFreeze spoke with her and said... She had to convince each person of the group of her sincerity. So for the next few days, she spoke with each person. The Harrises were skeptical, but it looks like that's their M.O. At last, on the 31st of March, 1974, eight weeks after her kidnapping, in a ceremony in the living room of the small apartment in San Francisco, she said, I'm sorry, she was asked the question, so do you want to be an urban gorilla and a soldier in the Sibianese Liberation Army. She said yes, and renounced her former life. The vote was unanimous, her blindfold came off, and for the first time, she saw the faces of the people holding her captive. And guess what? This is the birth of Tanya. Alrighty. There it is. The birth of Tanya. And next episode, we're going to be talking about her... Adventures of being Tanya in the Sibianese Liberation Army. And on that note, good night, Holly. Good night, Carl.